Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, August 21st, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. We go now to South Africa, a raucous scene in the parliament. There are members of the EFF party. Easy to tell who is EFF, the economic freedom fighters, because they all wear red jumpsuits. Why are we getting thrown out? That money, Nkanda money must be paid. You can't hide behind presidents. Actually, I think the color might be closer to amaranth. That's what I found when I looked it up. But here's what's going on in the scene. The president of South Africa, Jacob Zuma, he is no stranger to the charge, and I'll say it the documentation, of corruption. He used some public funds to uh, upgrade his home. And the EFF is led by a guy named Julius Malima, who was once a protege of Zuma. He's now a radical defector from Zuma's party. And he was asking the president, it was question time, he was asking the president about the funds. So the question we're asking today and uh, we are not going to leave here before we get an answer. Is <laughs> when when are you paying the money? And from there it was all sit down and be quiet. No, we will not sit down. And then red jumpsuit clad members. And let me also say one was wearing what looked like a red varsity letterman's jacket. And a lot of them had berets. But they start banging their red hard hats. You won't remove us. We are not going anywhere. Pay back the money. Pay back the money. Pay back. Oh yeah, did I mention they wear hard hats to Congress with their overalls? EFF has about 6% of the seats in the assembly. They shut the whole thing down. In the feed that I was watching, there's this sign language interpreter in the bottom of the screen trying to keep up with everything. And then the parliamentarian shuts the mic and clears the chambers and the guy just sighs and walks off the screen. So this is a huge sideshow. The EFF, they're not great. They've said some crazy things over the years, but charging Zuma with corruption isn't crazy. But I'm just thinking, wouldn't it be nice if the U.S. Congress were color-coded and the Tea Party members wore blue tri-cornered hats and the yellow dog Democrats all dressed in yellow? It makes C-SPAN so much more watchable. Color-coding would double Congress's approval rating to at least 12% favorability. That's my suggestion for today. On the show, Facts and Infractions. Yeah, the star of the FX show named Married, Nat Faxon. He won an Oscar as the screenwriter for The Descendants. And we'll question a question about fractions because the gist has an in-house mathematician. Why not use him? And in the spiel, selfies and selfishness. So sit back, adhere to your faction, tune up to Tony Braxton, and I'll bet you and Andrew Jackson that you like our show on fractions and faction. Lights, camera, action. Writing in the Wall Street Journal about some of the aspects of the Common Core, Marina Ratner, a professor of mathematics at the University of California at Berkeley, retired professor, asked rhetorically, who would draw a picture to divide two-thirds by three-quarters? This is one of the things that they always teach you with the Common Core. Visualize it. Draw a picture. And I have to say, I work on Common Core stuff with my son. The number line really works. He does understand math in a different, maybe even better way than I did. But yeah, who would draw a picture to divide two-thirds by three-quarters? 
I am speaking with such a man. Please identify yourself, sir. <laughs> Jordan Ellenberg. Jordan Ellenberg is the author of How Not to Be Wrong. He's a professor of math at Wisconsin at Madison. Why would you, could you draw a picture depicting two-thirds divided by three-quarters? Yeah, when you ask who would draw a picture to divide two-thirds by three-quarters, the answer is somebody who didn't know how to do it already. That's who would. We use pictures to help us gain understanding. So it's absolutely true that once you know how to do it, there is a kind of purely algorithmic mechanism which will get you the right answer. But, you know, all kinds of times when we're trying to work something out, whether it's a math problem or trying to figure out how to build something, you know, you take out a piece of paper and you draw a picture to figure out what it is that you're doing. That's not strange at all. In fact, it seems a rather normal thing to do. I thought it was a little strange because I just couldn't figure out what real-life application it had. Here's how I worked through it with, in my head. I understand multiplying fractions, right? Someone says, look, we have a bunch of pies. Why is it always pies? Look, we have a bunch of pierogies and some one took a third of the slice of four of these pierogies. So we have two-thirds of a pierogi, and we want to take these two-thirds of a pierogi, and we want to essentially cut them in half. So that's multiplying. Yeah, the theme is fair pierogi division theorem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that seems I've just uh, constructed a story based around multiplying fractions, but what's such a story that maybe you could affix a picture to about dividing fractions? Well, look, let's say you go to Canada or something and you see some distance and it's in kilometers and you want to know how far it really is. <laughs> well, so then, you know, you may know that a kilometer is about three-fifths of a mile, so you divide by three-fifths, right? That would be a very typical example. Or for that matter, if, you just, if you're playing asteroids or something and you need to know how many quarters, you know, you've got 325 and you want to know how many quarters that's going to be. You know, you're dividing by a quarter. And yes, you could say, but isn't that the same thing as multiplying by four? Well, it is, but... What we want for our students is for them to understand why dividing by a quarter, figuring out how many quarters are in 325, why that is the same thing as multiplying by four. And if a student understands that, they've really understood something mathematical. When you teach your son, and you wrote about him in the New York Times as a huge baseball fan, so as a mathematician, how much did you do any math teaching of him, or were you one of those who said, let's let the teachers do it, I don't want to muck them up with my you know, advanced uh, theorems? Well, I haven't taught him my advanced theorems yet. I'm going to wait till puberty. Yeah. Do all the hard stuff together at one time, you know? But did you at least reinforce homework with things like multiplying fractions and uh, all the stuff that an uh, eight-year-old, nine-year-old should be doing? Yeah, we talk about math all the time. I mean, I think it's always a challenge. You don't want to sort of feel your kids are forced to like the same things you like, but at the same time, just as with baseball, you can't help expressing your enthusiasm for the things you really care about. I mean, when it comes to messing around with fractions, we basically always talk about it in terms of something that is really real and meaningful to him, namely pizza. Yeah. You know, outside of New York, sometimes they cut the pies strangely with more than eight slices. So that's helpful if you're in Wisconsin. Exactly. Sometimes in little squares. Oh, so bizarre. So is his schooling basically a uh, common core idea where you have to understand the numbers more than just do the functions and learn that you flip a fraction and multiply and that's what dividing by a fraction means? Well, so here's an important point, actually. I've got to tell you, I have no idea whether the curriculum at his school is Common Core. And the reason I have no idea is because when people talk about, okay, discovery learning or learning with pictures or the number line, people are like, what is all this Common Core stuff? That stuff has nothing to do with the Common Core. The number line, they had that in 1980. 
when I was in third grade. I mean, these are old things, these ideas of learning by doing, of learning by experimenting. These were there before there was the Common Core, and these will be there after the Common Core. And if people think that getting rid of the Common Core will mean that teaching mathematics will be done in a kind of way where you carry out algorithms, um, they're going to be sadly disappointed. Okay. Does his teaching use things like pictures, for instance? Yeah, it does. I mean, and I think, but of course, it also has like long sheets of addition and subtraction problems. And I think, you know, the reality on the ground in most schools, in most places, as far as I can see, is that teachers are firing on all cylinders and broadcasting on all channels because different kinds of students are going to respond better to different techniques. And so when you're teaching math, there's no, I mean, I wish there was some magic bullet, some right way to teach math where you're like, do this and it's going to click with everybody. But I don't think that's true. I think you've got to try a lot of different stuff. And I think teachers, are much less wedded to a single ideology of how to teach than columnists are. Yeah, I agree. But uh, what I'm getting at is, uh, so so my son does a way of learning math differently than I learned it. Um, I don't object to that. I think it really works. I like to augment on my own time some of the more carry-the-one type ways of math, give him some more tools than they're giving him. And I wonder if you think that that's a smart strategy or if it seems to be working with what they're teaching in school, just leave it alone. So I have not done carry the one with my son because he seems completely comfortable with the algorithm they use for adding multi-digit numbers in school. Seems to work for him. Makes sense for me. But if there was something he didn't like about him, sure, I'd be like, here's another way to do it. I mean, the great thing about math is that the answer is the answer, and there's lots of different ways to get there. So you can pick the route you like, and different kids may like different ways. They might just find it fits into their intuition better. So, yeah. That makes sense. Okay, so there is one question that's been hanging over this interview this whole time. What is two-thirds divided by three-quarters? I think I know it. It's eight-ninths, right? I was going to say that. All right. (laughs) I beat you to the punch. Can you express that as a picture? Go ahead, on your own time. That's about how much pizza I can eat in a sitting. (laughs) Jordan Ellenberg, professor of mathematics at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, author of How Not to Be Wrong. Thank you so much. Thank you. There isn't another actor in Hollywood who plays a greater variety of characters that women do not want to date than Nat Faxon. That is a quote from an article. It is not merely an observation on my part. But yes, it is true. Nat Faxon sometimes plays a cad, but not in his new FX show called Married. He's kind of the title or at least the main character, which means he's married. His last series was Ben and Kate. That was originally called The Kids. And he also wrote The Descendants and won an Oscar for that with his writing partner, Jim Rash. Nat Faxon joins me now. Hello, Nat. Good evening. <laughs> Good day. Po- it's a podcast. I couldn't figure out right? what we were just talking about time zones, and then I got confused where I was. Yeah, well, it's a podcast, so good portion of the day you happen to be in, I guess it is, yes. <laughs> so I got to say, exactly. I've seen you in a lot of roles before this one, and they're funny, they're quirky, they're often the best friend. I think that it may be hard, and Shakespeare know, knew this, a lot of people knew this, that a lead, to make that lead interesting or quirky is a little harder than to be like one of your co-stars, like John Hodgman co-stars in this new show. Yeah. He shows up, bang, he does his scene, you know who he is. But he doesn't have to be someone you like, he doesn't have to be someone you identify. It's a little right. harder for a lead, and I know you've 
surely played leads in smaller things than the movies you've been in. But this is a little bit yeah. of a unique challenge in terms of being on a really big stage and being the lead who everyone likes. And they're also, I feel like, the hardest to write for because always they come across as just reactionary and therefore sort of less interesting because it's just a lot of like, Mom, hey, Tommy, I'm not like that, Jane. Hey, guys, you know, it's a lot of like just refereeing in a sense. And yep. so it's hard to make those characters at all interesting because they are sort of being proactive to sort of like push the show forward. So I haven't, you know, gotten the chance to play that many leading parts and just to sort of the way that my career has gone. And then that kind of changed with Ben and Kate. And I think that allowed people to sort of see me a little bit differently. And then certainly that helped, I think, segue into this. But the transition certainly from, you know, network to cable was a difficult one. And I think combined with the fact that I was sort of playing the lead and the it was a challenge to not sort of overplay stuff and make it too goofy and broad and over the top. And But that was sort of nerve-wracking because at times you just sort of felt like, oh, is this, am I playing, is this enjoyable or do I just now seem like the boring reactionary guy at the center of like a TV show? And the show's about a couple played by you and Judy Greer who, like a lot of couples, have kids, feel like a lot of their life has died, including their sex life. So here is a scene from the first episode where the couple sits in their backyard and you guys are talking about your problems. The girls, they take everything out of me. And it doesn't help that every time you look at me, I get pregnant. That's not always my fault. I, the last one, I wore a condom. Yeah, and you screwed it off. I didn't screw it you off. You did screw no, it off. No, I didn't. Your yes, vagina, you did. like, ate it. Don't and then blame this on my vagina. Well... Look, I'm trying to make everyone happy, and then at the end of the day, I have to make you happy, too. I... It's just too much. Well, hit her back. I don't know what to tell you. Maybe you should just go and be with someone else. What? You want to split up? No. The wife sort of gives you a pass, says, implies maybe that you can have an affair. Now, there have been a bunch of shows or a bunch of movies that have tread in this area, right? I'm thinking of Larry Mm -hmm. David, but that's a very different vibe on the Larry David show. And then, you know, This Is 40 has some of these issues. And I wonder, Mm -hmm. this show's really edgy. Uh, The Brett Gelman character is, you know, totally inappropriate at all times. There's some, not full frontal, but backal nudity, some masturbation. So we're going there. I get that. But do you wonder or worry about infidelity and having the audience identify with your characters because it just seems to me that even in this day and age of like accepting oh yeah we'll watch a scene with the guy masturbating and we'll laugh at it but it seems like in infidelity still is a little bit of a third rail in terms of a tv show you welcome into your home and have characters that you want to identify with yeah i completely agree it was uh, they caused the most pause i think when i was considering the script and considering doing the project i had a really good like lunch with andrew Gerlin, the guy who created the show and then i felt secure enough that the show wasn't necessarily going to totally live in that arena because i wasn't totally interested necessarily just playing a guy that like hooks up with like a different girl every week his wife says it's okay but you still you know, it's a hard thing to pull that off as far mm-hmm. as likability is concerned. Like, yeah. people are just like, yeah, but you're still cheating on your wife, and that's a dick move, regardless of whether she said cool or not cool, you know? 
But I think the network was really smart, and Andrew was very smart in sort of quickening the pace out of that um, initial conceit and, and pivoting right to really more of what the show, where the rest of like the sort of nine episodes lives, which is just everything that has to do with marriage, and it's more of like the story of Judy and I than it really is about a guy who gets permission from his wife. So you won an Academy Award for screenwriting. We have John Hodgman, who's a funny writer and has written best-selling books. And Jenny yeah. Slate does Marcel the Shell, and that's a New York Times mm-hmm. bestseller. And Brett Gelman's a UCB mm-hmm. guy. We interviewed Judy Greer for her memoir. So it's like writer, 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 writer. Everyone's on the show is a writer. How does that change the dynamic? <laughs> We're constantly giving each other notes and rewriting each other. Um, no. I can speak personally. Like, when I'm acting in something, I sort of almost check out of the responsibilities of writing. There's something probably lazy about it, and there's also something, like, very refreshing in terms of not having to kind of solve any problems that you might arise, you know, when something maybe works on the page and then you hear it out loud and it just doesn't feel right or whatever it is. And to be able to sort of walk away and just go to craft service and, like snack and not have to think about how to make that work is something very like lazy and enjoyable about sort of not having to take on that responsibility. Nat Faxon is the star of the FX series Married. He also had a goal and two assists against Deerfield Academy. Actually, I just made that part up. <laughs> you ever play them? I, I think it was two goals and one assist. Very good. I, I like that I was one assist. Stick it to him. Nat <laughs> Faxon, thanks so much, Nat. Yeah, thanks, man. I enjoyed talking to you. And now the spiel. James Dobson, minister, conservative, corporal punishment adherent, reaches millions on his radio program, Focus on the Family. Dr. Dobson's son, Ryan Dobson, also focuses on something that focuses, your smartphone and its ability to allow the user to focus on himself. The younger Dobson, a minister and the author of Be Intolerant Because Some Things Are Stupid, Spoiler alert, things like homosexuality and environmentalism. The younger Dobson wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, and he's taking on another scourge, another pox on modernity, a scurrilous trend about which to be intolerant. The selfie. Taking a picture of yourself. Bad. Possibly immoral. His evidence. Kim Kardashian does it. Also, a couple of tourists in Portugal fell off a cliff while doing it, and God probably doesn't like that. That part, that's a little more implied than stated. But to illustrate the dangers of selfie abuse, Dobson tells this story. My great-great-grandfather was on his way to kill a man when he was diverted to a tent revival in a small Texas town. Instead of taking a life that night, M.V. Billingham gave his life to God. He left his gun on the altar. M.V. was unarmed, but after that, he habitually deployed a secret weapon. Was it a knife? No. For most of his adult life, he routinely prayed for his son, for his son's children, and for their children to the fourth generation, all the way to my dad. Whatever a selfie says about a person, this man was the opposite. With a strong sense of more than me, more than now, more than a century ago, he prayed for people he'd never meet. All right, allow me to deconstruct this. I can't. All right, allow me to marvel at the rhetorical achievement. He says, 
whatever a selfie represents, well, it literally represents the taker of the picture. That's by definition. That's not what he means. Whatever a selfie represents, my great-great-grandfather was the opposite. So if a selfie, let's work this out. If a selfie is a picture of yourself, the opposite is a picture of someone else, right? Or maybe a picture of a koala. No, wait, wait, wait. If a selfie is a picture of yourself, the opposite is a musical composition about yourself. No, wait, wait, wait. It's not an image at all. It's a thought about someone else. All right, that's it. That's what he's saying. His grandfather prayed or great-great-grandfather prayed for someone else, thought about someone else. That's the opposite of a selfie. And we hate that. And we know selfies are bad because the word is selfie. I think if selfies were dubbed like auto pics or unisnaps or solo shots or Google Viz, come on, that's probably going to happen. Everything would be different about selfies. There wouldn't be this ridiculous moral panic over pictures of yourself. So selfies were criticized during this year's Tour de France because spectators taking selfies got in the way of some of the cyclists. Now, the fact that spectators have been getting in the way of cyclists for every Tour de France for 100 years, that never came up. It was the selfies' fault. And selfies were blamed when President Obama took one with Danish Prime Minister Helle Thorning-Schmidt at Nelson Mandela's funeral. But for Obama, it wasn't a selfie. It was a Danish Prime Minister Helle Thorning-Schmidt-y. And to the tourists in Portugal who climbed over the guardrails to take a selfie and died, all right, between the phrase took a selfie and climbed over the guardrails on a cliff, what verb-noun combination do you think correlates more with mortality? The problem is that the word selfie sounds so much like selfish, and it's tied up with narcissism, so named for the original selfie taker out of Greek myth who fell in love with his own visage and was tricked into suicide by the goddess Nemesis. Side note, wait, the goddess Nemesis is your nemesis? Oh my God, she's my nemesis too. It's an actual conversation between the muse obvious and literal the nymph. But the word, just the word selfie, if that word were adopted hundreds of years ago instead of the phrase self-portrait, we would probably view all of art differently. Van Gogh's selfie with a bandaged ear, it's always about you, Vincent, isn't it? Actually, if you cut off your ear, can you really call it a selfie? It's more like a 93% of selfie. And now that I think about it, Van Gogh is said to have presented that ear to a prostitute who fainted. So this means that as long ago as 1988, we knew that the transmission of body parts to women you lust after almost never goes well. Now back to Ryan Dobson, who is against selfishness because his great-great-grandfather listened to a preacher instead of shooting a guy. There seems to be something inward-looking and solipsistic about turning a thin tale of tourists in Portugal and creeping Kardashianism into a fable about your own forefathers. Who's really saying me, 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 me here? Is it some 16-year-old duck-lipped high school sophomore who's using her generation's communication tool? Or is it the son of a son of a son of a son of a gun-wielding would-be killer who would have put bullets in another person if the traveling preacher man had gotten a flat tire. So you know what, Ryan Dobson? Leave the tales of mysticism for the pulpit. I choose selfie over preachy any day. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, producer of Slate Podcast, is not a blonde, so excuse her. Sound the anti-flaxen klaxon. She's not of Nordic extraction. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcast, is a bit waspy and minimalistic. I sense an Anglo-Saxon attraction to subtraction. You could listen in SoundClouds or go to iTunes. Also, are you on Yo? Go to Yo. Sign up for Yo. Follow Podcast. And you'll get a Yo as soon as our podcast is ready. 
And if the yo thing isn't gaining traction or is too much of an abstraction, may I suggest an alternative action? Sign up for the daily newsletter that hits your inbox the moment the show is live. That's at slate.com slash gist email. And because we have a weird attraction to interaction, we're on facebook.com slash slate gist. And our Twitter feed is slate gist. And you can email the gist at slate.com. Finally, a retraction regarding my stupefaction as regards the contraction and I can't get no satisfaction. Can't does not connote inaction. Rather, it's an admission of dissatisfaction, perhaps due to Mick Jagger's period of refraction. I apologize and regret the distraction. And thanks for listening on your computer, iPhone, or Android contraption. Contraption.